welcome to episode four of the Contagious Courage podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Matheson, and today I am joined by one of my dear friends, Joanna Atkinson. And I have to say, I think you're one of the most authentic, ambitious, and courageous young women I know. So it's an honor to have you on the podcast, Joanna. Aw, thanks, Steph. I'm glad to be here. Uh, So over the last several years, uh, you have had some pretty impactful and life-changing events and circumstances. Uh, After your undergraduate degree, you worked with the A21 campaign, and I think you actually started with them while you were still in undergrad. Um, But I was wondering if you could share a little bit. First, what is the A21 campaign? What do they do? Yeah, the A21 campaign is a counter-human trafficking organization. So they're a global nonprofit currently operating in 12 countries. And um, it, A21 really started, um, it was kind of birthed out of the State Department's model, which incorporates an aspect of prevention and awareness. Um, and then they have a component of their operations that's focused on direct victim assistance through what they call their restore program. And then um, Mm -hmm. they also work with agencies in their respective countries that they're operating in to identify and rescue victims of human trafficking. And so there's really this kind of fulsome response to a global issue of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the organization. You're right. I started with them in undergrad. um, And that kind of, that was birthed out of some experiences that I actually had in high school unrelated to the work of A21, um, but it brought me into contact with the issue of human trafficking. Um, I, growing up in Southern Oregon, where, where we're both from, um, mm-hmm. I spent a few spring breaks down in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. And it was right around the time when the issue of human trafficking was kind of coming um, to the light and mm-hmm. um, starting to be talked about from a policy standpoint. And so um, I had a few very personal experiences down there in high, down in San Francisco in high school that led me to um, really dig into what um, organizations were doing to combat it. And I came across the A21 campaign um, through a friend um, and, and we ended up going to the organization's California office to intern. And so during that summer, I spent um, the, the bulk of my time working on education curriculum, uh, which I know would be near and dear to your heart. Yeah. But it was focused on um, high school students here in the U.S. Okay. And that has since evolved into this global curriculum that now um, I believe is in several of the countries in which A21 operates, um, tailored to their school system, to the the presence and the scope of trafficking within that country. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's become this, just this amazing project. So, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I didn't even know uh, about your high school experiences (laughs) down in San Francisco. That's um, awesome. And neat that you got to to have that exposure and, and at such a young age and have yeah. that perspective. Um, and I love that the A21 campaign partners with other countries. I think sometimes um, U.S. companies with the best of intentions go in and we don't fully understand how a country works. And so I think that partnership is really important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that has really marked A21 from the, um, from the get-go was their 
willingness to work alongside country partners um, and I mean, from the very beginning of their presence in the country. Mm -hmm. So they'll, they'll work with locals in conducting feasibility studies and modeling their, um, pro their programs within that country. And then mm -hmm. in most of the countries that U21 works in, um, it's actually the, the um, office in that country, the A21 office in that country is staffed by nationals of the country. So they're very familiar with navigating that country's laws yeah. and agencies and all the respective touch points that they would need for the work that they do. Which, mm -hmm. like you said, I think, I think that differentiates A21 from a lot of organizations because it's not a, um, it's not a U.S. centric approach. It, it's mm -hmm. very um, specific to the needs uh, and the nuances of that country. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then you went to South Africa with A21? That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I worked with A21 um, for the last few years of undergrad. I was with them for that initial internship in California during my sophomore year. And then this helped to pilot that um, curriculum through the end of my uh, bachelor's degree at Belmont University in Nashville. And um, at the time that I graduated, Belmont um, was offering these grants, these incredible grants for graduates to go and work with a nonprofit in, um, in country. And so I connected back up with E21 and ended up um, getting to go work with them in their brand new South Africa office. Um, and so at the time, it was small staff. Um, we were, the hope and the scope of my grant funding was um, for, was to be used for building out our primary school curriculum, um, tailoring it for the needs of South Africa, because trafficking mm -hmm. looks very differently, or looks very different there than it does here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent a good deal of my time doing that, but um, the nature of nonprofits, as it goes, I'm sure uh -huh. any of your listeners that work with nonprofits or for nonprofits and understand that, I'm sure yeah. you get it. Um, you just kind of fill in where you're needed. And yeah. so um, because we were such a small staff um, with a massive task in front of us, I ended up doing some direct victim assistance work in Cape Town. Um, and it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. At the time, mm -hmm. South Africa, or the A21 South Africa was, was serving as an intermediary between several government agencies and um, other resources um, catering to the needs of victims of trafficking on the ground. And so, like, for instance, um, I worked directly with the South African police force and identifying um, victims of trafficking. And then we, we would do um, interviews with them just to make sure that they were in a place where they actually wanted to utilize our services. Mm -hmm. And then we would transport them to, you know, temporary housing or to any type of medical appointments or um, any uh, interviews that they needed to conduct for the purposes of taking their case forward in the legal system. So, I just got to touch on all wow. of these really neat um, areas of work. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that was really what kind of laid the groundwork for me to, to, to do what I did in the years that followed and to be where mm -hmm. I am at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
a lot of important work. And, and I know when we hear of human trafficking, we tend to think of it as like a foreign problem, we being in the United States. And uh, I don't remember any of the statistics or even ranked, and I don't know if you know off the top of your yeah. head, um, but I know that like Portland, Oregon and San Francisco were That's towards right. the top of, of cities in the United States That's um, right. with high numbers of human trafficking. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, a lot of it is um, geographical. Any any city in the U.S. that has a international airport um, or a seaport um, has an international highway running through it, which, crazy enough, Portland and San Francisco happen to have all three. Um, they tend to be, they tend to um, rank pretty high in terms of the number of uh, victims of trafficking that are identified year to year. And I mean, Portland, last I checked, is um, second for juvenile sex trafficking okay. of any city in the U.S. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, anytime that we want to call it a foreign issue, we need only look at the stats. Every state in the U.S. has had, um, uh, has, or excuse me, a, a victim of trafficking has been identified mm-hmm. in every state in the U.S. So, wow. Yeah. Heavy stuff. Would you say that that initial experience in high school and then working with the A21 campaign has led you to what you're studying now in terms of international law and human rights? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was going down a very different path in undergrad. I, I studied biochemistry and thought I would go to medical school and had a very different trajectory in mind. But when I started working with A21 and then spent some time overseas, um, I just, I came to this conclusion that a lot of the um, ills that I was seeing Mm -hmm. were the result of poor policy or lack of policy. Um, And so I really felt, and as cheesy as it sounds, I I started to get the sense that my task was um, more to do with healing um, Mm. the ills of policy and policy-related um, issues mm-hmm. um, more than it would be dealing with kind of the downstream effects of, mm-hmm. of those issues. So, yeah. Sure. And one of your international experiences between undergrad and the A21 campaign and where you're at now mm-hmm. um, was living in Saudi Arabia. That's right. <laughs> which is quite possibly one of the most pol- polar opposite uh, cultures from that of the United States. Uh, What brought you there? (laughs) It's always such a good question. Um, I have always been fascinated with the Middle East. Um, I don't know if that's because Mm -hmm. my dad's military um, and I grew up just, he he was stationed in Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. So I was very young and I, I, you know, I I guess it was kind of it was this far off place that was familiar to me insofar as my dad had lived there. But, mm-hmm. um, so I was always interested in it. I studied Middle East politics as, as a part of my uh, political science degree that I ended up tacking on in undergrad. And um, mm-hmm. so... It's just I, lightly tacking on, no big yeah. deal. <laughs> um, so I, after I got back from South Africa and um, my parents actually, while I was still living in South Africa, had been given an opportunity to, to go live over in Saudi Arabia um, through a defense contract that my dad took. And so 
I had this option within the terms of his contract to go live over there. And I just felt like, I mean, you will understand this as well. Mm -hmm. I just felt like I needed to take the chance to go do this because Saudi Arabia is one of those countries that very few people get to go to. And um, so I, I thought when I made that decision that I would be over there for a few years, um, any, I mean, scope of any defense contract in that part of the world is pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's uh, at will. So okay. you just never know how long you're actually going to be there. And But I thought that I would go over there and teach English for a year or two while I figured out what the heck I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up only being there for a few months, but we lived up in the northwest of the country in a town called Tabuk, where the um, a portion, a unit of the Royal Saudi Air Force is based. And so we lived on a British aerospace compound um, with Brits and Aussies and Canadians and South Africans, um, just a whole expat community living in this little agricultural town in the north of Saudi Arabia. So. Yeah. Were you able to leave the compound much? Like, were you able to go out into parts of Saudi Arabia where it was, there was more of a stark contrast um, as opposed to being there with people from Britain and Australia? Yeah. Yeah. So it's stuff. This is always kind of um, an interesting thing for me to talk about because I, I felt like I had so many experiences that are in Saudi Arabia that are kind of still emerging with their lessons at this point in my life. And it's like five years later. Right. So, um, but yes, to answer your question, um, we did leave the compound. Now it's kind of, you know, I don't know if this is so much, um, a security issue now as it was back in the nineties, but I mean, all the compound, all the expat compounds, um, in the area that we were living in were, have been there for decades. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're still built with the, sense of um, conflict that was present during the Gulf War. And yet I really struggled to figure out why that is still the case. Mm -hmm. And granted, I'm no policy, I'm no, you know, Saudi U.S. policy expert, but Mm -hmm. it was very odd for me because I, I mean, and maybe this is, this stems from my love of the Middle East, but anytime we would leave the compound, I I didn't feel unsafe. I didn't feel um, particularly exposed um Mm -hmm. now is it a very different culture absolutely oh absolutely like we Mm -hmm. would um actually I'll tell a little story about our arrival because I think it'll give some context so (laughs) (laughs) so you're when you fly into Saudi Arabia um as a female a young Caucasian female young Caucasian (laughs) female when you hit Saudi airspace um whatever airline you're on they will announce that you have to cover up and while so, you're still in the air. While you're still in the air. And so okay. um, as a an expat, you're only required to wear the abaya, which is the um, garment that covers basically the neck down. Um, okay. So just cover, yeah, you cover. And like your, your hair wrist. too, yeah? And, um, actually, you're not required to cover your hair. Although I will say, um, and this was something that was really interesting for me. So a lot of the expat women will not cover their hair but you do feel in that culture you do feel very exposed if you're not covered so I think for me it just felt mm, almost like a 
a measure of respect mm-hmm. to cover my hair um, a bit. And so I would often wear, I, I didn't wear the full covering, but I, yeah, I would put on a headpiece just mm-hmm. to feel a little bit more covered. Um, but I mean, every interaction that I had with Saudis was so positive. Um, it is a land of stark contrast. I will say mm-hmm. some of the, um, some of the things that you see and some of the things they hear that you hear um, or are told should be the way that, let me rephrase that. Some of the things that you see don't often align with what you've been told about the country. So mm-hmm. um, I probably won't go into detail on that, but it's just, I, I always call it like this land of contrast, um, which I think teaches you a lot. <laughs> yeah. Coming from somewhere like the U.S. where everything's just kind of out in the open. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very conservative Muslim country. Right. Um, and when you were there, women didn't even have, it wasn't legal for them to drive. That's right. That's right. That was, I just, that's just been in the last year, correct? Yeah, or, I mean, ride bikes. Um, there's some pretty, there's some pretty uh, well-established, to some degree, um, wives' tales or, you know, things that have been used to kind of ingrain those um, realities in that mm-hmm. country. And I think, you know, a lot of it came from back when um, Saudi was coming out of the British mandate, um, you know, and they needed a way to control these very um, distinct tribal groups that, you know, came from different mm-hmm. sects of Islam and so I think that the, the, the pushback that we're feeling is, is, um, is long, a is long time coming. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, you, I mean, you did experience that to a degree. Well, I, I, I did experience that to a degree while I was there. I had some conversations with Saudi women who were very involved in local politics, who were very involved in, um, you know, progressive policy making and, um, it's just neat to know that that there are activists on the ground that are trying to make these things happen. Um, but they're doing it in a way that I, I, th- I just think is really admirable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Well, then continuing on with your overseas journey, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you then ended up getting your master's in international law and human rights at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. And not only is that, I think, an interesting topic, um, but to be studying that right there um, along the long-lasting Palestinian-Israeli conflict, um, can you, I guess, first share like a basic overview of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict for those who aren't familiar with it? If I can explain this well, then someone needs to pay me a lot of money because it is so complicated. Um, So I think probably most people would agree that the origins of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict came in and around the conclusion of World War II when Israel was established as a state in 1948. Um, Around that time, there were a number of legal instruments that emerged uh, between various European powers and um, the Zionist groups coming out of Europe um, and the local Palestinian authorities. Um, 
it's all very interesting. I can probably go into a ton of detail about that. Um, but I will say that it, it just, this time was kind of fascinating in the emergence of this conflict because um, Jewish populations and Palestinian populations had lived side by side for so many years in this region. So mm -hmm. I think that was one of the impressions that was really striking for me when I, when I went to live in Israel um, was this reality that um, these communities had lived side by side for so long and that um, almost these um, external forces had created a conflict where there was none. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, I, I, I can, could share my opinions about that. I could share why I think it's so complicated and, and um, why I think we are working with, we often work with information that um, is incomplete, but um, I think it's probably more fruitful to talk about um, the ways in which those communities are trying to um, rebuild themselves and reintegrate and find peace in and amongst like neighborhoods and, um, you know, schools and, and where they all have to kind of coexist together. And that was, that was the big thing for me when I was in Israel was observing that happening in day-to-day -day life. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would you, do you have any like personal stories or experiences to add on um, aside from, you know, what people might be able to find on the news or um, from doing some research about, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, um, because obviously, yes, it's very political and right. um, like just in terms of like a personal experience from a day-to-day, day-to-day life for a citizen. Oh, I'm, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was in Jerusalem, which itself is hotly contested political, mm -hmm. geopolitical issue. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the conflict, Jerusalem is um, and the boundaries of Jerusalem are, are unsettled um, since 1967 when Israel formed a, an armistice agreement with Egypt and Jordan and ooh, Lebanon, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are these, they, it's called the Green Line. It's the armistice line that runs through Jerusalem and kind of divides the city east and west. And so Palestinians tend to live on one side of that line um, in East Jerusalem and Israelis tend to live on the other side of that line in West Jerusalem, but that line is not absolute. And I mm -hmm. think that it's those experiences that crossed, that crossed lines that were really impactful for me. So the university that I was at in Jerusalem um, actually sits in East Jerusalem. So the, the Palestinian side of the, the armistice line. Um, and the Hebrew University has students from everywhere. From, you have I had Palestinian classmates. I had Israeli classmates. I had Palestinian professors and Israeli professors. And so in this microcosm of the university, you saw what it looked like for people coming from very different backgrounds, different beliefs about their own status and mm -hmm. their own... Um, history um that were lit they, they were they were living together and debating together and um talking about what makes this such a complex issue um and all of this was happening in 
you know, the intimacy of the classroom or the cafeteria. And, you know, you didn't, there was no provocation or violence or, you know, all these things that you see on the news and kind of expect from the Middle East. That wasn't, that wasn't happening at my university. It was Mm -hmm. people looking for solutions and creative ideas. And I would say that that actually represents populations I think most of your day like most people day to day just want to live in peace with their neighbor Mm -hmm. Um, and I think some of the um, the the ways in which the conflict is um, exaggerated or um you know, the the way in which Western media tends to focus in on particular incidents, I think it it inflames the emotions of the West in a way that is probably, that probably doesn't hold true um, to the experiences of people Mm -hmm. on the ground. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's something so important to keep in mind um, for everyone is what we tend to see on the news about any country is so is, is the conflict and right. politics and and that's the same for people who hear stuff on the news about the United States and it doesn't that's always right. do a good that's job right. of painting a picture for who the people are and what day-to-day life is like yep so that's just right. a, a good reminder I think so too yeah and I think um it just was really important to me walking away from my experience there to recognize that yeah what I was seeing and reading um, was this isolated incident that didn't and shouldn't define my understanding of the people um, that those stories are trying to, like, it, it shouldn't be a label that I put on the people um, behind those stories. Yeah. It's yeah. not a single story. Which yeah. Is one and we're not favorite. And these, talks. Yeah. And these, and these people groups are not monolithic either. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing that I think is really important to take away. So, yeah. Yeah. And now uh, you are in law school in Washington, D.C. I am assuming that your focus is still around international law and human rights. It is. Yeah, it is. Okay. And what uh, what do you want to do with your law degree? Do you have kind of an ultimate goal or (laughs) that kind of ever evolving? Anybody who's gone to law school realizes that this is like an ever evolving question. (laughs) I think for me, I came into law school with this very clear conviction about what I wanted to do. And you come in and the doors are thrown open and you realize that there are a million and one paths to get to where you think you want to go. And even where you think you want to go might not look like (laughs) what you think it is. So Mm -hmm. um, all that to say, yes, I think that my my long-term objective is still the same. Um, I I envision working in international human rights in some capacity. I think it would be um, silly for me to not draw upon my experience in in doing human trafficking work, Mm -hmm. um, to not go back into that realm. Um, But I, I do foresee myself wanting to work in kind of a bigger capacity. I've gotten to do some work um, with over this last year with some victims of torture and a few other um, just uh, mass atrocity situations. And so I 
I mean, all of those things are informing what I think I want to do in the long run. But yeah, I, international human rights work. Um, but that's a big world. Yeah. Yeah. Very so. big world. A lot, a lot to take on there. <laughs> um, but you, I mean, you do, you have so many unique experiences. Um, and so I'm excited to continue following your journey and, and see all that you continue to do and accomplish in the years to come. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I think one of the other things that has been really um, insightful for me coming into law school, too, is to realize how much good work there is to do here in the U.S. as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, having a bit of wanderlust as I do um, and combining that with a desire to actually impact communities beyond my own, I think, lends itself to wanting to work overseas. But Mm -hmm. I think you and I, and, and I'm sure your listeners know that there is a lot of work to be done here too. So I, I will say that I daily ask myself the question of, you know, maybe, maybe the good work is right here yeah. in my home and in my community. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how that all takes shape. Maybe it's both. I was going to say, we're still young, so there's yeah. plenty of time to easily fit both in there. That's right. That's right. Um, well, before I let you go, I have five questions that I like to ask everyone. Okay. Um, and kind of a, a range of questions. Uh, the first one, which can either be really easy or really difficult. Uh, but what is your favorite or must read book? Oh my goodness. Favorite book. Off the top of my head, I would say, um, my must read book books are anything by Brene Brown. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, maybe I'm saying that because I have her name written down on my notes in front of me, <laughs> but honest to goodness, I think everybody could, um, learn from the work that she's done. It's fabulous. Um, right. I think the other book that has really impacted me and my, my perspective, um, has been a book called, um, the body keeps the score. And I, okay. I just think it's all about how adverse childhood experiences um, translate into your behaviors in your adult life and um, whether or not you yourself have experienced them, that's one thing. But um, I think for me, especially in the work that I've done um, with, with victims of uh, human trafficking and then in the mm-hmm. criminal justice system and things like that, it's really helped me to give people the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that would be my other book. Okay. And that one is your body keeps the score. The, the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to read that one. Mm-hmm. All right. And then um, what do you do for self-care? Do you have like a self-care routine? <laughs> yes. I have been trying to get better at this. Uh, I feel like I've already, I've always prioritized self-care, but it's had to look different. Mm-hmm. each season of life. So for me right now, um, I am very intentional about getting up with enough time to be able to spend either meditating or journaling or just doing some type of quiet time in the mm-hmm. morning, whether that's five minutes or 30 minutes. Um, it kind of just depends on the day. Um, and then I, being from the Pacific Northwest, um, I have to spend time outside or else I go crazy. So <laughs> here in the, here in DC, that's been a little bit more difficult than mm-hmm. I would like. Um, but I, I've been trying to either go on a run a few times a week or just go on a little walk 
I think long mm-hmm. walks are the, one of the best things we can do for ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I will forever be an advocate of filling your body with the right things. Um, mm-hmm. So nutrition is, I think, my ultimate self-care. Yeah. And that one's a, a good one to have because you only got one body. Only got one body. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, next one, uh, you're a, a world traveler like myself. Do you, what is your biggest travel necessity? What do you need to have with you when you travel? And that can be around the world or just like on a road trip. Yes. My biggest necessity. I have, okay. So <laughs> this is a long answer to a very simple question. <laughs> I used to pack so much stuff when I traveled, like ask my parents they would just make fun of me and now I have figured out how to travel with a carry-on to most anywhere that I go um Mm -hmm. so I don't know that I have much that I take with me on every trip um goodness oh here I wear um I wear the same scarf every time I travel because it's this huge scarf that basically serves as a blanket can serve Mm -hmm. as a pillow (laughs) so Get yourself, yeah. get yourself a big old scarf and then you can take it anywhere. So there you go. That's yep. great. Uh, this next one I think is my favorite question. Okay. Um, I, I just love to know it about people. Uh, when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? An astronaut. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> and no hesitation. <laughs> that is what I wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. Was that for a long period of time growing up? I think it still is what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, okay. And then the last question, um, the name of this podcast is the Contagious Courage Podcast. Um, it's about providing inspiration and motivation. Um, so I want to know, what gives you hope for the future? Mm, I love this question. Um, these conversations and knowing that I mean, I have them all the time, knowing that um, truly at the end of the day, most people are doing the best they can with what they have, um, that people want to see the best um, in their work and and, in the way that they interact with one another. I think for me, that gives me so much confidence, you know, despite all of the um, abuse of power and all of the toxicity that we see and are, are hear about day to day. I think when you actually sit down with people and you understand um, where most most people where most people are at, you you start to understand that wow, we're all we're all connected in this way. So that gives me a whole lot of hope. Yes, <laughs> so so good. Uh, well, I. Speaking of conversations, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> I love our conversations Me and every too. opportunity I get to chat with you. Me too. No, you have to get going. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And we need to catch up soon outside of the podcast. I agree. Thanks, Steph. I love you so much. And um, amazing work on this. Thank you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the Contagious Courage podcast. 
If you like what you heard today, please consider leaving a review or taking a screenshot to share on your own social media. It all means so, so much to a newbie podcast like mine. Thank you again for listening and don't forget to tune in next week.